this before. There's a great Southern writer, Flannery O'Connor, and she wrote, it's always been hard to believe. But even more so in the world we live in now, there are some of us who just have to pay for our faith every step of the way. 500 years ago, it was virtually impossible not to believe in God here in the West. But now for so many people, unbelief is inescapable and belief seems almost impossible. Um, in the 16th century, the 1500s, atheism was basically inconceivable. It was untenable to think that behind the universe there wasn't a God. There were enormous obstacles to unbelief built into the fibers of society. But now, 21st century, the basic assumptions we carry about this universe build enormous obstacles to belief. So in a relatively short period of time, 500 years, but that's just a blip on the radar of history. We've gone from a world where belief in God was the default assumption to a world in which belief in God can just be so difficult. And that's just the general belief in God. What we're dealing with this morning is something even more difficult to believe. Dead people don't get up. You know that. I know that. It's the universal human experience. Dead people stay dead. The early Christians knew it too. It's right there in our gospel reading. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. We find these three women who had witnessed Jesus' brutal ex execution, and two of them had, had seen his burial. And what are they doing? They're carrying spices to anoint his body. In, in their culture, this is a twofold act of service. It was an act of service for the dead person to revere their memory, to honor their life, to honor them and their family. And it was also a service to the survivors to lessen the horrible smell of decomposition. So these women had watched Jesus die on the cross. They've come to attend to a tortured corpse. And that's what they expected to find in the tomb. They had no idea that Jesus' resurrection was even thinkable. Like I said, Dead people tend to stay dead. It's the universal human experience. It's a mistake to think that it was somehow easier for the earlier Christians to believe in the resurrection of Jesus than it was for us. It wasn't. In the Bible, it doesn't hide that fact. None of the contemporary beliefs in Jesus' day regarding life after death, none of them bear any resemblance at all to the claim of Jesus' bodily resurrection. What happened to Jesus flat out contradicts the belief structures of that culture. That's why when you read the Gospel of Mark, 
when you hear Jesus telling his disciples over and over and over again that he was going to suffer and die and be killed and rise again from the dead, the disciples didn't understand what he was talking about. They thought he was talking in metaphors or riddles again. These women, just like the disciples, despite their incredible devotion to Jesus, they had no expectation of his resurrection. They were, they were completely caught off guard. They aren't going to the tomb with faith in the one who was alive. They're going with ointments for the dead. And then there's the end of the resurrection story in Mark's gospel. Mark 16, verse 8. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Running away, trembling, silence, fear. These are descriptions of panic. Just like the disciples fled from the cross, the women fled from the empty tomb. So yeah, God surprised everybody on that first Easter day. The Bible never tries to hide this. Believing doesn't come easy for many people. But let me ask you a question. What if it's true? What if this whole story is actually true? And who wouldn't want it to be true? The Bible is the story of how the one true God who has created the world has now taken charge of the world in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our deepest longings, the stuff of myths, the stuff of the greatest stories, true love, eternal life, justice, beauty, truth, these aren't just fantasy. They're the primal, collective human awareness of the way things were made to be. And these innate longings have been fulfilled, but in a way nobody imagined. They've been fulfilled in and through Jesus and his death and resurrection. This is how the Creator has launched his plan to fix the world. In and through Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection, the Creator has grasped the world in a new way to sort it out and to fill it with his glory and beauty and justice, just like he always promised he would do. The ancient sickness that has crippled the world and humans with it has been cured so that new life can rise up in its place. In the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, life has come to life. It's pouring out like a mighty river into the world. All this has happened in and through Jesus. And one day, it will happen completely and utterly to all creation. And we, Human beings, every single one of us, whoever we are, we can be caught up in that transformation here and now.
This is the Christian view of reality. And here's my point. What an incredible story. The British atheist, Julian Barnes, he, one time he wrote, the Christian religion didn't last so long merely because everyone believed it. It lasted so long because it was beautiful, a great novel. The story the Bible tells is the greatest story ever told. So what if it's true? Who wouldn't want it to be true? Show me a better story. Wouldn't we expect, after all, that God would write the best story? But being attracted by its beauty, how does this help us with our doubts in this age? Look at it this way. Some people think that becoming a Christian only happens after you wrestle through all your doubts, and then once you've sorted out all the evidence, you take the plunge. It's possible that that's happened to somebody, somewhere, someplace, sometime. I've never seen it. Most people I know feel deeply attracted by the gospel despite their doubts. So on the one hand, their doubts are real and hold them back from faith, and on the other hand, the pull of the gospel is so strong, it draws them toward faith. And in the end, they decide to put their trust in God and in Jesus Christ despite their doubts. They're still in two minds. They're not all clear. <laughs> but they hope that their doubts and difficulties, as they grow in their faith, will be sorted out. So here's a way to think about it. Let's say you're at a party, and you meet somebody, and you feel drawn to them. You start spending time together, and as the days and weeks and months go by, you realize you're falling in love with this person. But you hold back. You don't let the relationship go any further because you don't really know them. Because after all, what if there's a dark side to their character that I don't know about? Can you really trust them? Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you think, how can this person really love me? What can they possibly see in me? You're profoundly attracted to this person, but you have doubts. And so you've got two options. You can hold back and become a prisoner of your doubts, of your hesitations, or you can take a risk. You can say, I'll give it a try. I'm going to hope that my doubts and anxieties will be resolved as things go along. This is the way many people become Christians. They're aware of the enormous attraction of the gospel. They're deeply moved by the thought of God making all things new through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, by the thought of Jesus Christ dying for their sins, by the thought of the promises of forgiveness and justice and beauty and newness of life. They're attracted to that. Let me give you an example of this beauty. In fact, let me give you two examples. In Mark's account of the resurrection, 
we find two examples of the alluring beauty, the unprecedented beauty of Christianity. First of all, when the angel spoke to the three women on that first Easter morning, something he said is so elegant. It's something that has drawn untold numbers of people into the faith. It's in verse 7. The angel, he's talking to the three women. And we heard this read. Mark chapter 16, verse 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. These disciples, they deserted Jesus in his most desperate hour of need. They deserted him. And one of them was a traitor. And Peter repeatedly, emphatically, publicly denied and blasphemed Jesus. And here we see the disciples, Peter, they're not written off. Just like Jesus had said way back in chapter 3 of this gospel, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. And Jesus kept his word. Go tell Peter. Don't you want this to be true? Peter, this wayward disciple, after his catastrophic failure, his ugly arrogance, his boastful pride, his public falling on his face, even he was not beyond redemption. Peter would have been so grateful for such a generous and kind and patient God. Isn't this beautiful? Here's the story of a stunningly generous God. The God who is the source of all delight, of all that is lovely and lively. This God who is filled utterly with love, just love that we can't even begin to imagine, Grace to the core of his being. Isn't he alluring? So here we are, seeing how the account of Jesus' resurrection in Mark chapter 16, seeing how it portrays the real difficulty of belief as it crashes into the beauty of the gospel. But I can't stop there. You see, I'm trying to court you, to allure you into the faith. So let's see another detail in this resurrection account. Look at verse 2. Here's something whose beauty is beyond the singing of it. Verse 2, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they, these, these three women, went to the tomb. Mark is very particular about the time when the women reached the tomb. Here are three phrases in a row. Very early, first day of the week, and when the sun had risen. Very early, first day of the week, and when the sun had risen. It's like a sandwich. The time of day is the bread sandwiched around the day of the week. Because that, that day is Sunday. It's really important. It's in all the Gospels. Apparently, 
every time this story was told, this detail was thoroughly explained. But it's, Mark, it's what Mark does with the time of the day. That's what I want to point out. Because it's confusing. You see that initial phrase, very early? In that culture, this is a term that refers to the part of the morning prior to sunrise. Anybody see that this morning? Part of the morning prior to sunrise? But then the end of the phrase says they went there when the sun had risen. So if you've been attending Holy Week services, you may remember that when Jesus was crucified, this is in chapter 15 of Mark's Gospel, for three hours it was dark. Middle of the day. You see, Mark is telling us that the same sun that in the crucifixion had fled before nightfall. Now, in the resurrection, this same sun came ahead of time in the night to put the night to flight. The sun, in order to die with its creator, had put to death its own midday brightness. And in order to rise with its creator, it vanquished the darkness and burst forth before the dawn. This is beautiful. And I'm not only talking about its literary quality, I'm talking about the overwhelming claim that's being made. I'm talking about this astonishing mind-boggling, imagination-stretching claim that the resurrection of Jesus is not simply about the fact that Jesus is alive and therefore his death really did forgive Peter's sins and our sins. Now, that's true. In fact, that's central. And it's massively important, but it's by no means the whole truth. And the resurrection isn't about simply a new kind of spirituality. Jesus is alive, therefore we can get to know him. That's true, but that's not the heart of Easter. The whole truth is that Jesus is alive, and with him, a whole new world. A new creation has come into being. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, on page after page after page, we have this promise from God that he will not abandon this world, that he'll rescue it and he'll establish his good and gracious kingdom. That when he does, the sun of righteousness will arise with healing in its wings. And in Jesus' death and resurrection, this has happened. The good news is that the one true God has taken hold of this world in the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It really did happen. God's new creation really did begin. So when we pray for God's Holy Spirit to breathe in and through our lives, it's so that new life, real and lasting new life, can spring up into the world. The good news is true. Something has happened as a result of which the world as we know it is a different place. And if we're following Jesus, praying for his spirit to guide and empower us, 
We're part of that new creation. We can be resurrection people. People who are being renewed by the good news. People through whom the good news is bringing healing and hope to the world at whatever level. And we do this against the day when one day the renewal of all things will take place. And we'll share it with him in a resurrection of our own. What an incredible story. Like Julian Barnes said, the Christian religion didn't last so long just because everybody believed it. It lasted long because it's beautiful. It's a novel. So going back where we started, are you the kind of person for whom believing just doesn't come easy? It's okay. Do you feel the suffocating imminence that characterizes late modern existence? Do you live under a brass heaven? Nothing outside. Are you haunted by doubt? Doubt that Jesus' life and death and resurrection opened the door to new creation. Doubt that if there is a God, he could love you. Doubt that if there is a God, he gives careful attention to each one of us. Julian Barnes, in the same book I've already quoted from, he starts out, first line of the whole book, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Do you want to believe? Like Julian, do you have a longing for God? If you do, don't think that doubt is the opposite of faith. Doubt and faith can coexist. They do in all of our relationships. So take the risk. Give the relationship with God a chance. The American author Sheldon Vanokin wrote a book about his own struggle through the wilderness of doubt. Here's how he put it. If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a piece of fish. I wanted letters of fire across the sky. I got none of these. It was a question of whether I was to accept him or reject. My God. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble. But what about the leap to rejection? There might be no certainty that Christ was God, but by God, there was no certainty that he was not. This was not to be born. I could not reject Jesus. There was only one thing to do. I flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. What about you? So like those frightened women on that first day, we have to learn not to be afraid. Just because we don't know where God is now leading us doesn't mean 
that the new world hasn't begun. No, with Easter, it has begun. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.